0: This is Michael Cox for the Incommon Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Shana Mahajan, lead social scientist with the Global Science Team of the World Wildlife Fund, or WWF. We spoke about Shana's educational experiences and her time at WWF, during which she has focused on helping conservation projects become more inclusive and holistic. Shana has done this in part by developing decision support tools, including a tool called Eleanor, so named in honor of Eleanor Ostrom. This tool helps researchers and practitioners, in the language of the Eleanor website, track attributes critical to the success of area-based conservation over time and share this information with decision-makers and conservation supporters. We also talked about Shauna's experiences on the ground to support inclusive and holistic conservation. A theme that I heard during this part of our conversation is one that I've heard before, this being that there is no substitute for hard work and the building of relationships over time which I think is both obvious and profound. We also talked about Shauna's experiences at WWF, a large conservation NGO, and advice she has for young environmental scholars and practitioners, including her younger self. We concluded with a chat about a new program at WWF that is encouraging the career development of underrepresented groups at that organization. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Shauna Mahajan. When I um, got my Ph.D. in 2010, I wasn't telling myself like I need to be a professor or I'm like a failure or whatever, whatever the narrative might be. I actually applied for some jobs in D.C., didn't do well in the job market in D.C., and then did well in the academic job market. So I just told myself, I'm going to see how that works. And so the podcast has been for me, honestly, like a chance to Uh, an excuse to talk to folks who work for organizations like WWF, et cetera, that have experiences that in another life I would have been interested in having.
1: Mm -hmm. That's super interesting because I feel like I'm on the sort of other end of that spectrum. I, I never actually did a PhD and I just did a master's and then wanted to go down more of an academic route and then per fate or luck ended up sort of on this practice route And I think a lot of what I do has been trying to span that sort of practice science realm. Um, And the more I interact with people on both sides of that spectrum, I think you have, I think there are more people than one would expect that have that sort of shared identity crisis. And I think it's also a reflection of the changing nature of um, academic research and practice too, and trying to lower some of those silos. So there can be more connections across. So.
0: So you got your bachelor's at McGill. Yes. Right. And then you have a master's in science from Stockholm University. Um, What was your focus in that program and what were your kind of your goals coming into it?
1: So um, I was actually quite razorly focused on going to the Stockholm Resilience Center for my master's. And one of the main reasons was um, after finishing my bachelor's, I actually worked at McGill University for a couple of years Sitting between the Natural Resource Science Department and the Geography Department, and I remember one day finding a book in Elena Bennett's office um, at McGill, and it was called Resilience. It was by a woman named Anne Devinson, and it tackled resilience from more of a mental health psychology perspective. But it was all about how individuals and communities either you know have manifested resilience or have not in the face of adversity, and I think that concept of resilience just really stuck with me. Um, and it was from there I sort of learned about the whole resilience research community and decided that that was the path I wanted to go on. Because I think like I had this sort of identity crisis even growing up on if I wanted to go more down the natural science route or the social science route. So in some ways, it was sort of a solution to that challenge in that, you know, here was a worldview and a way of thinking that did not separate the the natural world from the human world
0: i think i mean that that experience really resonates with my experience in grad school where i struggled with a kind of very standard public policy education so i was taught like cost-benefit analysis some microeconomics some statistics which are all fine but then like halfway through my graduate degree i was exposed to the resilience alliance and its ideas and I think a lot of people have a kind of like pseudo religious experience where it's like, oh, th- I, I'm picking up on this idea of a worldview, right? It's this like family of concepts that kind of like settle in our brains in this way that's that like catches hold of us.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think um, so the other thing that sort of drives a lot of who I am, what I do is I, I got really into yoga when I was younger and in, in and I'm a yoga teacher outside of my science life. And I think I have this very fond memory because when I was a student at the SRC, I used to run yoga classes for the students there. And we used to, I had a friend who was also really into mindfulness practices and we would completely nerd out on sort of the similarities between this sort of, you know, these holistic worldviews that come from the East and resilience thinking. And so I think that for me, this sort of resilience framing, social ecological systems framing really kind of sat with my broader worldview and approach to life i think so if i finally stopped feeling like you know little bits of me were in silos here was a holistic way that i could approach not just my work but how i live my life
0: so that's something you've carried forward um this relationship between like your personal life and you mentioned that you were you read this book It was ann davidson was the author
1: and Evanson, yeah resilience.
0: Does, has that remained an interest? This relationship between resilience and mental health and personal practice going forward? Because I think that's something that I've I've had this like covid interest in, but never really developed. And I'm always I've been aware that that's kind of there is a separate literature on like psychological resilience, but I'm I've, I'm I'm not aware of like a very strong relationship between like that literature and like the ecological resilience, a la like Buzz Holling, et cetera but that's you that's those have been two important pieces for you in terms of your interest in resilience
1: yeah and i think i would agree in that i haven't seen much connection sort of in the literature between those two realms and honestly i haven't dove as much as i would like to into that psychological research world where i have brought those two worlds together it has been um in the body of work that i am leading at WWF on applying systems thinking to fostering systems change and for me one of the most important components of that work is that you know we need to think differently act differently show up differently in our work to be able to catalyze the systemic transformations that we want to make to create a you know just and and fair and green future um, and I think that that philosophy is often missing in a lot of the ways that we've conventionally thought about conservation planning and evaluation and that we don't actually see ourselves as part of the systems that we're working in and reflect on the agency that we do have or the agency that we lack and how our own worldview shapes the projects, programs, interventions that we invest in and and the power that those have to influence the things that we care about in the world. So for me, that has been where a lot of these connections have sort of landed. Um, There's a lot of really great work in the organizational development universe that you know thinks about how you facilitate individual and group processes that has been really helpful in connecting dots but for me that's sort of the frontier for for um you know the next phase of my work is trying to connect those dots more
0: can we segue a little bit from your time at stockholm to the world wildlife federation wwf well so one question i have sean actually was like did your formal education introduce you to some of these ideas that you just mentioned, or did that kind of come along through your own processes, working at WF, etc.? cetera?
1: Um, I think it's been a mix of both. So while at the SRC, I was very well introduced to the social ecological systems framing, um, a lot of fantastic tools, resources, methods for bringing that, those theoretical approaches to research practice. Um, I think when I was there, I kind of pushed the edge of what those mean in practice. My dissertation focused on um, understanding how communities perceived the impact of community managed marine areas, which was sort of my clear pathway into the world of WWF. Um, but I think a lot of um, a lot of developing the sort of practical tools and approaches really came from trying to bridge that gap from the sort of you know tools for research to what those mean in practice. And and maybe I can just give an example. When I I first started at WWF, one of the big projects I worked on was part of a a network called the Alliance for Conservation Evidence and Sustainability. And that group was trying to um, bring together a lot of the big conservation nonprofits who work on community-based conservation and see if we could agree on a shared, sort of science-based, theory-based approach to evaluating community-based conservation so that we could better learn across our portfolios of work, but also help scale learning across different corners of the world, across different biomes. Um, part of that process was developing sort of, you know what are the generic theories of change that people use when they're implementing community-based conservation programs that kind of articulate why we think change is going to happen in a place as a result of our actions. And we were using what's we often use in conservation, which is logic models, for kind of teasing out what those you know causal pathways are. Um, and myself and a colleague, we found ourselves getting increasingly frustrated about how we were missing a lot of the really important complex relationships and feedbacks and dynamics with these sort of you know cause and effect diagrams that we were used to drawing. And so that was where it was like, oh, well, at SRC, we used to do a lot of you know systems mapping and causal loop diagramming. What if we brought those tools in to kind of unpack some relationships here? And that was what really led to experimenting with more systems thinking inspired tools in conservation. And that sort of spun off into a lot of different projects where we tested that you know logic. Does using systems diagrams help us think about problems differently? And the answer was yes and you know there was a lot of different ways in in how that played out in for different projects and for different people and we're still very much learning how to really use these tools in a way that serve um, the ultimate goals that we have in practice
0: i want to follow up on the systems thinking but before then i do want to ask one final question to kind of segue into your time at wwf can you Talk to me a bit about what the process was between like you graduating with your master's and starting your position, because you're now a lead science, lead social scientist at WWF. Can you talk to me a bit about that process and then we can dive more fully into the the method of systems thinking that you've been promoting during your time there?
1: Sure. Um, and it wasn't, um, I don't know, I guess our pathways are never what we expect them to be. But after I finished at SRC, I did, um, I did feel the need to really slow down and sort of connect again with nature. So I did take, take some time off and traveled around and, and you know spent time in places where people really do live together with nature. And I feel like for me, that was really important for crystallizing the path I wanted to be on. At the same time, I was applying for all sorts of jobs. Um, my first uh, touch point with WWF was actually after I finished my bachelor's. I first did an internship way back then. So I knew a little bit about WWF science work and WWF as an organization and applied for a whole bunch of things during my um, my year off. And I actually got an internship offer at WWF and a job at NOAA offered to me the same week. And um, as one does, I took both. Um, and I really enjoyed okay. my time with both. And you know, luck had it. I was able to kind of balance both. I did one first and the other and bounced back and forth. Um, and then a uh, position opened up in in WWF's global science team, a full time position, and I I finally made the official segue from NOAA back to WWF. Um, but I guess all that to say, it wasn't it wasn't super linear. I had I just knew from my first internship at WWF and then my second that it was an organization full of really motivated, fantastic people, a network around the globe that were really. You know pushing the boundaries of what it means to do conservation and so i was just really excited to to be part of that of that movement uh, when i first started it was mostly focused on monitoring and evaluation the human dimensions of conservation but over time as our global science team has evolved and grown um, we are really inter- interdisciplinary team um, based all over the us um, and elsewhere and and increasingly, I'm focusing more on how we do inclusive science in support of inclusive conservation. And so, the you know the big themes that shape my work are systems thinking for conservation, which I already spoke about a bit, um, knowledge co production and research co design, um, and still a strong theme on monitoring, evaluation, and most importantly, learning, which I think has been a really big shift in conservation organizations in the last decade or so. In that. We don't just do monitoring and evaluation to report to our donors, but really to learn about what works and why and how we can improve what we do to have the impact we want.
0: So, Sean, you've started to kind of answer some of my questions about systems thinking already. So let's kind of build on that. Can you, you know, let's imagine and this is harder in like an audio medium, right, because this is a very like visual technique. But let's imagine that someone's listening. They've they've maybe heard system thinking once or twice, but they really don't really know what it's about. How, what would you tell someone who's kind of interested in it, but but really doesn't know how it's used? And maybe they know this idea of like a logic model. Can you can you kind of paint a picture of what it looks like <clears throat> to actually use this as a method? Yeah,
1: um, and I think it helps to talk a little bit about sort of the, you know, philosophy of systems thinking first and that, and, you know, Donella Meadows defined it better than anyone in that, you know, systems thinking is a way of thinking and understanding that recognizing, that recognizes that things are connected, the the inherent interconnection of things. Um, And so that way of thinking, um, I think, can inform how we catalyze more transformational change in systems. And I think that there are many tools that flow from sort of that philosophy of thinking that help us do that practically. Um, and so those tools might be more technical in nature. We already spoke a little bit about systems mapping and causal loop diagrams. So those visually can help people articulate how things are connected, how there are you know, unexpected relationships between things, um, feedbacks between different parts of the system. But they can also be softer in that they can help surface how different people understand systems differently; those different worldviews that shape how you and I and everyone approach the world and approach life, which inevitably shapes how we do, you know, whatever work we do, either in service of sustainability or conservation or other goals. Um, so for me, it's it's more that that philosophy shift that's really important, and then there are these tangible tools that help us bring that philosophy into our day-to-day work
0: okay and that's so we're all we're also making a connection here between your focus on systems thinking and your focus on kind of more inclusive science and practice as i understand it right because there's this idea that there's a kind of co-creation of a more systematic way of understanding a case and the co-creation is occurring between well who is it occurring between when when this is done in practice
1: yeah that's i mean dare I say everyone, but, but I think that that's sort of the ultimate goal of inclusive conservation is how do we really make sure that those, you know, voices that have historically been, you know, very intentionally excluded from conservation decision-making or unintentionally excluded from conservation decision-making have more of a voice and agency and power in deciding, you know, the future of our, you know, shared land, seas, and waters. Um, so, so for me, System thinking is a broad frame that guides our broader work on inclusive conservation but also inclusive science that is supporting inclusive conservation Um, practically how that showed up for me is you know i get the i have the privilege of working across scales at wwf so i sit in our global science team i do a lot of work with our us-based programs but all of our us-based programs for the most part are you know, we enable our partners and peers in offices around the world to do conservation work on the ground. Um, So I think in my particular role, I support our our peers around the network to co-produce, co-design projects and science with the communities where they work. And I also help facilitate connections between academics and researchers and practitioners within the WWF network because I do think that you know there are a lot of different levels where I think we need to get a lot more intentional about how knowledge is produced and then used to, to you know work towards this more inclusive way of doing conservation
0: okay why is inclusivity important
1: Ooh, that's a good question I mean for me it's you know this is maybe when we're digging into our mental models and worldviews. i think it's uh inclusivity is is uh it, it's a you know right i think when we look you know and, and this is sort of how i vision you know a future world where people who have been more excluded from decision making should have more of a say and i think that we you know I work at an international conservation organization and I know that we have a lot of power. And so I think we have a fundamental role, um, a responsibility in many ways to um, create space for those who have had less of a say in conservation to have a say. Um, I think many would also argue that it's fundamental for achieving our mission, um, that you can't have successful conservation without the inclusion of those who live and work in, in natural areas um but for me it's it's really more um it's i think it's it's just a fundamental value of mine that i believe should guide all the work that we do
0: Mm -hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense in my own mind i've found it helpful to kind of divide the value of participation inclusivity into like kind of its inherent value using the language of human rights and the fact that human beings have kind of a fundamental need to participate and be included. And then, and, and that's kind of, I feel like that's a lot of what I'm hearing from you. And then there's all this other argument, of kind of this more instrumental value that about local knowledge and the fact that if it's talking about inclusivity of local communities, that you actually also have, you it helps you produce better outcomes independent of the fundamental right and basic need that you're satisfying.
1: Mm-hmm. Does that
0: make sense to you or is that, or does that not?
1: Yeah, exactly. Those were the the words I was seeking, I think, the, the inherent and instrumental. So thanks okay. for
0: that. So a couple more questions about this, Shauna. Was, well, so two questions occur to me about systems thinking and its relationship to inclusivity. One is, how do we avoid systems thinking turning into like spaghetti thinking, right? This idea that, okay, we understand that everything's connected. And I've struggled with this when I kind of try to teach a version of this to students more informally, because once... Once you start thinking about connections and thinking holistically, which feels good, suddenly everything's connected to everything. And if everything's connected to everything, then you're not. Right. The value is in like the prioritization of some connections over all the millions that we could make, at least in my mind. Mm -hmm. But as kind of an expert in this, how do you view that? Is this not really a problem? Am I kind of introducing something that's that doesn't need to be worried about so much?
1: No, and I think this is the most common critique that we do get is that it's really easy to get lost in the complexity, but my argument is that we don't need to get lost in the complexity. I think one of the most um, important skills and capacities for integrating systems thinking into conservation or really any any discipline is kind of knowing when to go deep and knowing when to pull yourself out of it. Um, I think that's some that's a learning card that we still are on at WWF in terms of how when do we go deep versus when do we pull out um, and I think it's 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 knowing it's reading the room it's facilitation really I think that, that that's something that hasn't that didn't really come to me until after let's say I left SRC and spent a couple of years at WWF and really realized how critical this sort of you know organizational development Thinking that has gone behind the art of facilitation is for applying these complexity concepts to real world, to real world problems. Um, so if I take for example, we in, in 2020, we spent um, a couple of months, we're still spending time on it, but we went really deep for a couple of months into unpacking the relationship between zoonotic disease spillover, human health, and conservation. I think many conservation organizations and conservation researchers were thinking along those same lines at the time, and our goal in in digging into it as an organization at the time was to try to understand across all of our different goal areas where were there sort of synergies in this space that we should really be focusing on as a collective, as opposed to in our sort of separate teams that focus on wildlife or freshwater or food. Um, And that was a really valuable exercise because everyone brought their own perspective from the way that they conceive the conservation challenges they work on. We heard from people in different corners of the world who were seeing these relationships play out in really different ways. We use systems mapping to kind of blow up the spaghetti, but then we we pulled ourselves out of it and started to think about where were those bottlenecks or leverage points that we really needed to be paying more attention to that maybe weren't currently on our radar. Um, and so I guess this is a long way of saying, for me, it's, it's generating an insight. The, the kind of goal of going deep is to maybe reframe a problem, acknowledge a perspective that you hadn't seen before, and then use that information to maybe act differently or work with people in different ways. So I think it is a risk to get lost in the complexity, but I think there are ways that you can facilitate and navigate yourself out of it in a way that brings that complexity, complexity forward with you that's, that's easier to wrap your head around.
0: I mean, I feel like a part of the story that you're telling Sean is that this, this is not just, I mean, this is a deeply social process, right? When I hear facilitation, I I think that that's a relationship between people. And you, you mentioned the importance of this, not just being like, uh, a quantitative methodology alone, that you need a lot of these, like other skills to do this well.
1: Yes. And you know, I know that there's a huge community of systems dynamics modelers who do the quantitative stuff, but I think even some of them will tell you that the power comes in with the social process that sits around how you use those models. So yes, I think this is truly a social process and there's a lot from sort of the theory, the, you know, the quantitative side of things that can really enable that social process, but it's that mind shift for me. At least what I've seen has been when this this kind of work has the most impact in our, in our day-to-day work.
0: If we were to get a little meta here, would like, would it make sense for you to think about apply systems thinking to like your role in WWF you're in the global science team. Do you ever like start to think in systems terms about like your position individually, your position within your team and how it relates to the larger organization?
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes. I, yes, I do that a lot. And it is really helpful Um, again, it's, you know, in some ways it's like kind of having a strat, like we have, you know, we have our annual work plans, but we have a team strategy and as a team, we think about how can we best facilitate, you know, knowledge co-production, generating insights that can actually help change the way that WWF works and helps us on this trajectory towards a more, you know, inclusive and sustainable and just planet. Um, we actually just came out of a strategy meeting last week where we were doing a lot of this thinking on on our role as a team and how we can help catalyze change with the skills and, and capacities that we bring, but importantly, how we how we work with those around us. Um, I think some one thing that, um, or what approach that has come out of some of the sort of systems thinking tools has been um, a bit of a reframe on theories of change. Um, this is something that we didn't come up with, but it's been talked about in development circles. But separating out, um, you know, a theory of change is often sort of a theory about how we think change happens. In organizations, that theory of change often gets equated with how we think we will catalyze change. But one thing that, that I have found really helpful is defining sort of how we think we might catalyze change as separate from the broader change in the systems that that we are striving to influence so having a separate theory of action so sort of the actions we will take to catalyze change in the world from a theory of how change happens and for me that's a big that's an important distinction from a systems perspective because it recognizes that like we are but one we are Mm -hmm. but one part of a system striving to catalyze change in a broader system that is influenced by so many other things outside of our control um I found that framing really helpful for me thinking about my own work, but also for you know when I work with different project and program teams for kind of separating out what we think we can really help catalyze, how we can use our power and influence or where we lack power and influence from you know the broader systems that are changing around us.
0: I mean, that sounds like a really important step to take, Shauna, to recognize, and I've heard this from other folks that I've interviewed, is that it's... We, When you're trying to implement change, you do need to like accurately, well, it's building on what you said earlier about like kind of considering what your role individually and collectively in in the system is, right? So this is like an example of that of saying, well, you know, we might contribute to some of these outputs, but like broader outcomes in the system, that's less endogenous to like what we might be trying to do do you face pushback is there pushback against that perspective because i could see you know a funder someone wanting to say well i want what i want to fund is like a concrete connect i I can see the temptation of like the logic model being like okay we're going to do a that's going to lead to b and then it's going to be to c and c is what you're paying us for so we we can guarantee that we're going to get you what you're paying for is is that a hard logic to kind of push back against?
1: Yeah, or am and I, think, I kind of
0: again inventing a problem.
1: No, no, no. <laughs> I think it's um, you know, in some ways, it's it's more of like the path dependency. I think of the sector that we're in, and that we are we're so used to doing things this way that I have found personally in the conversations that I'm in, there is a hunger for. You know, we're we're all working towards the same goal. We all want to enable transformational change. Well, at least when we're talking about like the funder community for conservation, development, health. We want to enable better outcomes for people and the planet. And I think we often get sort of stuck in the way that we're used to doing things. And a lot of these sort of logic models is sort of like, you know, reductionist. I don't say that in a bad way, but it's it's more the like, you know, scientific philosophy that's kind of guided how these programs and reporting structures and proposal processes were developed. Um, so I think that path dependency is the thing is that that we come up against the most often rather than, you know, people actually pushing back. I think the pushback really comes back from the sort of getting lost in complexity and not being clear on what we're doing and why, which is where the, the sort of linear logic model with, um, you know, we're going to do X, Y, and B, and that's going to lead to you know, A, B, and C is very alluring because it's clear, but oftentimes it's a bit of an illusion because Mm, there's a lot of jumps in logics about how, you know, these few things will lead up to really important, but really aspirational outcomes that we're often striving to achieve. So I like to think of this system's work as, as really, again, doing that inner work, like, is this the right path? Are we the right people for this path? Who should be on this journey with us? With that outer work, like what specific things are we going to do to drive change, and ensuring that we have a good balance between the two, because I think it is really easy to get lost in one or the other. Um, but it's, I think, for me, it's the power of those two together that can help us as a sector become a lot more honest about what we can achieve, while still being aspirational about the goals and targets that we want to to reach and the change that we want to make.
0: So. Shauna, how does this approach of systems thinking and inclusive science and practice affect the outcomes that you think you're trying to achieve? How does it impact how you view conservation as an outcome? And secondly, you mentioned that you're working on monitoring and evaluation. And I've come to understand that to be often one of the hardest challenges for an environmental NGO to meet it's kind of you're always struggling to kind of get funding for the next thing and that you don't really have time for actually measuring how well we think we're doing. One of the challenges of monitoring and evaluation is simply that it's costly. So it's it's tempting to want to find some measurements that are more legible to external actors. How does this more inclusive, holistic approach impact the outcomes you want to achieve and how measurable they are?
1: So for the first question, I think... I, you know, I'm seeing real world examples of where this more inclusive approach is shifting outcomes. And I can channel uh, the amazing work of my colleagues in Coastal East Africa, where I've had the, the opportunity to, to work for the last four years or so. A lot of the strategy for our regional program there is really centered on the role of coastal communities in in marine conservation and really elevating the role that they play, not only in the day-to-day management through through community-based conservation and, and natural resource management, but also through the voice that they bring to national level policy and regional level policy. And that framing of just inclusion being the 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 engine that drives the the big outcomes that they're working towards in terms of more, you know, sustainable natural resource governance systems on local, national and regional scales, as well as you know, the biomes and the outcomes that we care about, like mangrove health and coral reef health, I think that has been a really um, you know, and that work didn't just start. That work has been ongoing for for decades, building the foundation that supports the role that that communities really at the heart of conservation are playing. But I think that it's really, really starting to to pay off in real ways in in that in that region. So I think for me, it's it's fundamental for for many of our outcomes. To the question on monitoring and evaluation, um, it is really hard. <laughs> it's a really, it's a fun field to be in, but it is it is not easy. And a lot of the work is finding the balance between those polls that I think you brought up in terms of sort of the easy quantifiable targets that can help us, you know, tell stories about the work that, the, that we're doing and, and the reality of the long time horizon it takes to achieve a lot of the outcomes that we care about. Um, but also facilitating learning and helping us adapt in real time to you know the mounting pressures and the shorter and shorter time frames that we have for, for creating the impact that we want. Um, uh, so a lot of how um, me and my colleagues that have been working on ME for the last, you know, years or so, we've been trying to reframe how we approach ME to be less sort of, you know, what's the indicator that we need to track, but more what are the big questions that we're trying to answer. How will answering those questions change our work? And then what are the pragmatic ways that we can go after answering those questions so that we do have tangible indicators that we can track and tell stories with, but also important insights that may be quantitative or qualitative that will help us learn and adapt and invest in the right things so that we can achieve the outcomes that we care about. Those processes take time and those processes are really hard to fund. So I think those are some Mm. of the, the biggest challenges that we face in our work.
0: So Sean, I'd be interested now to hear a little bit more about some of your own experiences in two regards. One is you just mentioned your work in, in coastal East Africa. Could you just describe for the listener how your experiences have developed there over time to kind of maybe provide a concrete picture of what some of these ideas look like in a particular place?
1: Yeah, so I've been been really privileged to work with our um, some of our country office teams based um, in Tanzania and Madagascar, but also our regional program that knits together work across five countries in the region. I come in, I'm from the United States. I am not from that region. I have not lived there my whole life. So I'm fully aware that I'm an outsider in, in the work there. So it, when I first began, it was a lot about listening and learning and understanding what were the opportunities and challenges that my colleagues were were facing. And over time we started to identify shared priorities. And I think one of the roles that we play in a, a science team like ours and, and I would say similar to many of my colleagues in, in WWF US is that we have um, just by nature of our organization, we we connect different corners of the world together. So I, you know, I've been lucky to work with coast East Africa. I also worked a bit with Indonesia. So I was able to see like, you know, here are some really cool things that our Indonesia colleagues are doing that perhaps could be applicable to what is being done in Tanzania. So we are, for example, facilitating a learning exchange between them in this coming year. Um, We also, in the science team, many of us have been immersed in different, you know, bodies of thought and different scientific disciplines that can offer new ways of thinking about monitoring and evaluation and learning. So a lot of my work with the teams in in Coastal East Africa has been about understanding what learning questions would help them improve their work and also what tools and approaches could maybe enable more shared learning across the region. Um, One of those tools is um, a tool called Eleanor, which honors a lot of the work of Eleanor Ostrom, Um, that will, we hope, help create a shared system and, and importantly, a data system that can help monitor environmental governance and management effectiveness over time. So so right now, a couple of the priorities that I have working with that region is is helping to um, explore the potential of rolling out that tool as a regional monitoring tool and also going after some specific learning questions in places there's one on capacity development for civil society organizations another one about the role of you know retired leaders from community based organizations in fostering community led conservation so just you know helping to bring a lot of the the science and tools that that we've had the privilege of studying and engaging with to real world application
0: and is the Eleanor tool, and I think the website is EleanorData.org, Is that something that's available for other folks to use as well?
1: Yeah, the vision for that tool, and it really came out of this collaboration with the the Coastal East Africa region. You know, we were seeing a lot of our colleagues using really similar approaches to measuring either management effectiveness or governance. Um, but we were having a really hard time in, in actually bringing that together, that data together in meaningful ways to learn across the region and to tell stories about our work. Um, so that's what led to the development of the tool and data system that integrates an assessment um, with field-tested questions that we've seen used in many parts of the world with a data system that strives to produce data outputs that are geared towards decision-making context. So that could be for a you know local government official who's responsible for managing an area or a community leader responsible for managing an area. Our hope is that the tool is, you know, we, we built it with our conservation NGO monitoring and evaluation staff in mind, but it's very much grounded in a lot of the questions I know researchers ask about governance of social ecological systems. So It would be amazing if it was picked up more by the research community as a mechanism to explore governance that would allow us to better connect the research insights with practical decision needs on the ground in conservation areas.
0: Yeah. I mean, it looks very cool. And I have to say, I do like the name. (laughs) Me too. Okay. Shauna, can you talk to me a bit about your day to day? You know, what, what is your life like working for as the you know lead social scientist at WWF, a large international environmental NGO? What does your kind of day in day out activities look like in this job?
1: The short answer is there are a lot of meetings. Uh, <laughs> there are good meetings, but there's a lot of meetings. I mean, I think that that reflects that our work is highly, highly collaborative. Um, so you know, and I think I love it for that reason, because I get to spend, you know, this morning, I started the day two hours on different calls with colleagues in coastal East Africa. Um, This afternoon, I'll move into exploring um, the findings from a recent review that we did on participatory approaches to monitoring and evaluation across our whole network. Um, So it's a lot of collaboration with many of our internal stakeholders and staff, but also Um, cultivating research partnerships with um, universities in the places we work around the globe, um, and really thinking hard about how science can help WWF achieve its mission. Um, I work close with a lot of our other lead scientists who touch on different focal areas like uh, forest, freshwater, food, exploring how sort of the systems thinking framing and the inclusive science framing can be better integrated across all the different areas that we work. I've had a leaning towards marine conservation just because of my trajectory, but I'm increasingly excited about um, bridging out to different focal areas as I think there's a lot to learn across them. Um, And I have been lucky that I get to to travel to many of these places a lot, you know, the virtual world of the pandemic was really great in helping us realize that we could keep connections alive um, across different corners of the world. But I've been really seeing in the last, you know, year or so since we've been able to, you know, open up again, that really spending time in person, like we said earlier, conservation is such a social process. Um, so getting to sit down with people and really work through these problems, identify needs and opportunities and ways this more inclusive approach to science can help solve those challenges um, has been really um, fundamental.
0: Okay. Okay. This question might overlap a little bit with the last one, but can you talk to me a bit to to the extent that you want to about particular aspects of the job that you've enjoyed? I mean, you just mentioned the travel, but also aspects that you found challenging.
1: Um, Yeah, so enjoyed. Yes, I, I do really love the opportunity to see different places. It really, I think for me, being able to, understand what the work looks like on the ground is fundamental for doing good science at a global level. Um, So that is always um, not only super enjoyable and inspiring, but really, really essential and grounding. Um, I love the people. I think I've been at WWF, it'll be almost eight years this year. Um, The reason I stay is because of the people, the network. Um, Everyone is so passionate about what they do and brings such diverse knowledge, expertise, different cultural backgrounds which has always been really important to me um, so those are those are some of the reasons I stay and the the things I love about wWF if
0: i if I ask you about a particular trip that was like meaningful to you in a certain way or you had an aha moment that you just kind of want to like describe for the listener what comes to mind
1: oh good question um were you in a
0: room and you thought oh no this is like something's clicking here and
1: yes actually um so let's see it was 2019. And this was one of our first um, attempts, I would say, at really bringing some of these systems tools into a real multi-stakeholder setting. So we were um, facilitating a dialogue at a national level in Madagascar about the current state and future trajectory of community-based conservation. Um, We were doing this as part of a a project that we had that was really trying to elevate community-based conservation at a regional level, understand where the opportunities were for learning and sharing across the region. So we were doing these kind of deep dives in different countries. And we had brought together, I want to say it was somewhere between 20 and 30 leaders of community-based associations, many representatives from all the different um, environmental NGOs and regional and national government. And we had used a series of facilitation techniques that were really designed to, you know, get people thinking differently about the status, the history, the future trajectory of of community-based work and one of them was uh, like a fishbowl exercise so, so we were specifically interested in trying to elevate the perspectives of the leaders from community-based associations um, and so the members of of those groups were kind of sitting in the middle of the room everybody else was sitting on the outskirts and the design of the room was meant to really focus on the conversation that the leaders of these associations were having with one another uh, and one of the common challenges that they were all facing was around the enforcement of rules in different um, community based managed areas. Um, we know from the Ostrom design principles how important monitoring and enforcement is, um, even though rights were devolved to management to manage resources at a local level, there was not the capacity to actually enforce any of the rules. Um, there was an interjection from one of the the representatives from national government who basically underscored that like you know the current politics would not would would mean that that those rights would not be devolved anytime soon and there was sort of this silence that kind of like fell over the room for a second where it was sort of this this key issue that people were really really focused on like they had their answer it was not the answer they wanted um, but at the end of the workshop when we were sh- everyone was sharing their reflections from the meeting I remember one of the one of these individuals who's from a um, a community based managed area was saying that you know this was the first time that they were in the room with national government and that they actually heard sort of direct feedback from national government. So for me that was a really like, oh whoa, this is <laughs> these tools are powerful, um, and this conversation is really important and. I would not have been able to witness something like that had I not been sitting in the room and had we not invested in really good translation. Because the other thing that was really cool about this meeting is that, you know, people were speaking in Malagasy in French and French and English and really we were talking across scales from global to, to local. Um, so so for me that was, yeah, it, it demonstrated the power of, of bringing people together and also uh, the importance of language and translation.
0: One more follow-up question, Sean, if you don't mind. When you think about how the group, it sounds like, was able to um, tackle this kind of language issue, what about the people in the room do you think enabled that, enabled some level of cohesion in spite of that barrier?
1: I mean, I think there was a lot of trust. Like, the reason a lot of those people were in the room was because there was sort of a willingness to show up to this conversation that, that and it was many NGOs that were organizing this this gathering uh, and so I think it was a testament to the years of work that had, had been underway to create more trusting relationships between different actors working on um, different dimensions of community-based conservation. And that's a theme that crosscuts, I think, a lot of our work um, from Coastal East Africa to elsewhere in the world is that you know this social process, this relationship building is so fundamental to, um, to achieving the conservation outcomes we want.
0: Okay, now, after that kind of tangent a little bit, challenges. What are some challenges that you feel like you've faced?
1: Yeah, it's, um, there are many. Um, I mean, I think the fundamental challenge is that this work is really, really hard. And I remember having a conversation, um, it was with, I don't know if you've met Paul Ryan, who was part of that, um, resilience Alliance group. And we were talking about these, you know, the resilience assessment methodology and systems change tools and, I was sharing the frustration and just sort of this, this sort of, you know, uncertainty on if these tools were really going to help fix things. And I just, you know, I remember him saying, this work is hard. And I keep that in the back of my mind because in conservation, we are trying to disrupt deeply, deeply ingrained systems. Um, and it is not easy to find to find wins i mean there are many wins but the big wins that you know those true systems transformations are really really hard to catalyze so i think you know there are moments where the work feels hard and then there are brilliant moments of inspiration that keep us pushing through those hard times so i think for me that's the fundamental one um more operationally um at wwf we're a really large organization which is our strength but it's also it can be challenging sometimes. We have so many different values that manifest in different ways in different corners of the network, in super different political, social, cultural contexts, and sort of reconciling those to have you know a shared voice, which we do have, is often is is challenging. So I think sometimes our size um, is our strength, but also can be can can be a weakness at times. Um, I think, and never too many hours, never enough hours in in the day, really, which I'm sure is a a sentiment shared by many. But Hmm. echoing the this work is hard, Um, you know, we are a, a relatively small science team for a very large global network. So I think understanding what priorities should guide our work so that we can have the the best impact and that we are playing the right role is really hard, and it's something I think that also involves. Regular recalibration as our world is changing so fast
0: mm. yeah, that was you preempted my next question, which is, what do you think the strengths and weaknesses of being so big as WWF is are? And your answer makes sense to me. You mentioned the size of the global science team. How many people are in that team?
1: Ooh, I think we are at around 25 right now. Okay. I want to say.
0: And that's a pretty small, I mean, relative to my general understanding of the size of WWF, and there are are country offices too, right? There's like a WWF, Madagascar, et cetera.
1: Yeah, and we have, you know, there are amazing science teams embedded in different corners of the network. And we have scientists who sit on, you know, non-science teams. So there's a lot, you know, we are a science-based organization. So there's a ton of amazing science going on across the whole network, but global science, we are sort of a particular unit that sits between our U.S. Team and our international team that is designed to try to address some of these big cross-cutting issues, um, and you know how we do that is um, is is constantly changing as we as an organization change as the disciplines and the tools that we need to tackle the questions that we are um, that will help us do our work change. Um, I think there has been a huge. Recognition in the last, you know, five ten years, how important the many many disciplines in social science are for conservation, and figuring out how do we actually um, bring that expertise into the organization, and or you know, by, through staff or through partnerships and um, you know, coalitions. Those are some of the questions that we're, we're grappling with on a day to day basis.
0: Looking back at your career as it's developed so far. What advice would you have for someone who's thinking about a master's, thinking about a PhD, thinking about conservation and conservation as a career? You know, what advice would you provide them or even kind of your younger self?
1: Mm, I like that younger self question. Um, I think the response that jumps to front of mine is that there is no one path. Um, I think I spent a lot of time beating myself up for not having done a PhD, uh, for kind of getting on this applied science track without going down the phd route which i still might do i don't know um but i think knowing that there are different pathways to getting to different places um i think the best advice that i remember hearing from somebody that again has really stuck with me is finding the intersection of like your passion what you care about and how you really like to spend your time Um, i think that was one of the reasons why i found myself staying in this space for so long is that i really Love working with people on tough problems, um, mm. and I really love the highly collaborative nature of our work. Um, sometimes being on eight calls a day is tiring, but I really love the the fact that I have the chance to connect with so many amazing people and advance this work. Um, and so that's how I think this applied, you know, conservation world really fits with sort of my what well, how I like to spend my time and and my passion. Um, and I think really investing in people and relationships. I I think I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for the many many formal and informal mentors that I had along the way. Back from you know when I was at McGill to the SRC to all those people I met along the way in you know formal and informal settings who have helped guide me to to make the decisions that led me to where I am today. Um,
0: Shana, have you perceived the PhD as kind of imposing a glass ceiling?
1: You know, I I thought it would, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, I think that okay. the the definition on who is a scientist is has been challenged a lot in recent years, which I think has been um really helpful for those who have taken unusual paths. Um you know, I, I sometimes, you know, I am I miss having the opportunity to have gone super deep on something for so long, which I think a PhD offers. Um, and I think, you know, if I were to go back and do it, you know, maybe I would go back and read Anne Davidson and hmm. dig deep into the mental health side of resilience. Um, but I think that there are also many different ways that you can kind of cultivate that same depth of knowledge through practice. Um, I know that there are new... You know, I don't know if they're new, but there are some programs around the world that offer these different pathways to PhDs as well, like the PhD by prior publication. Should you go down the more applied science route and want to knit together your your work later on in life? But I don't think it's it's impacted the path that I've wanted to be on. And I see plenty of people with PhDs in conservation organizations in non science roles too. So again, I think mm-hmm. that there are there are many more paths than we maybe perceive. Uh, that's maybe perceived. You know, purely from an academic side.
0: That makes a lot of sense, Shauna. I mean, I I might be imposing this because it's a thought I want to have, but I feel like something I've heard in this conversation also is the value of skills and qualities and abilities that are certainly traditionally not a part of formal education, right? You mentioned the importance of yoga and the sense of balance, and we talked about thinking about resilience as a source of mental health, you know, as a formal educator, I've I've often wondered, you know, how do we how can we make sure that I mean, and those things are not you don't get an, those things in a Ph.D., right? Like a Ph.D. does not help you think, oh, like, how do you achieve balance in your life such that you can be present and bring the right version of yourself? to these meetings that you're talking about and that is so clearly important in the anecdote you provided in this meeting et cetera. so i struggle a lot with like what are the limits of formality in the educational sector and providing these things that are you know so deeply important Mm
1: -hmm. yep and i i think that you know i spoke with a, a professor yesterday who was saying just how how refreshing it is to see the kinds of demands that are coming from students these days, be it at a undergraduate master's or PhD level for, um, for you know, recognizing these interconnections across disciplines or, or, you know, ways of thinking and working that have in the past seemed incredibly disconnected, that are all kind of in service of this sort of more inclusive, holistic way of living and working. Um, so I think that there is hope. Um, that that may there'll be change you know within the conservation sector and in the academic communities that recognizes these connections um you know i think i for me it's always just been a you know i'm guided by by ambition and the impact that i want to have but also just by like how you know we have one life to live so i think for me you know taking that time off um after i finished at src i spent a lot of time doing yoga studying yoga that year uh, was really fundamental to like recommitting myself to this path of, of working towards sustainability. Um, and I think I know, you know, even at WWF internally, we're having all these conversations within our broader portfolio of work on diversity, equity, and inclusion that really recognizes, um, recognizes the importance of this sort of more, more holistic approach to our work, which has been really, really amazing to see and fantastic to be a part of.
0: Well, it's interesting to hear. Has, has there been a synergy between the emphasis on inclusivity and in the in the conservation work and inclusivity within the organization that's conducting the practice?
1: Yeah, yeah, and this is actually a, a question that comes up all the time in a lot of different conversations that I'm a part of because there is, you know, there are a lot of organizational things that need to be addressed from a diversity, equity, and inclusion approach or lens and a lot of those overlap with our programmatic priorities not all of them do but there's a huge um, area of synergy between the work and again i think it goes back to what i was talking about earlier with this systems thinking as a as a set of tools and a philosophy that can guide that inner work alongside the outer work and i feel like that inner work is really where the organizational development work and our you know the mission that we are working towards really really intersect um I think figuring out sort of like tactically where that lands in people's work plans is probably what we're what we're figuring out and how will it influence a lot of the more ingrained processes and structures. Um, Because a lot of that, you know, again, if we think about systems, we as an organization are part of a much larger set ecosystem of institutions, governments, um, cultures that are striving to, you know, create a more sustainable world, and we're kind of operating within within that bound. Um, but again, i'm I'm hopeful. I, I've seen a lot of really, really amazing things in the last couple of years that I think um, hold great promise for making those connections stronger.
0: I mean, it's great to hear i'm I'm aware that there's been a historical critique of environmental NGOs as being not terribly diverse places.
1: Yeah, and I think that you, you can look back in time and see evidence of that, but I do also see evidence of that changing. I think one of the things that I've been most excited about, um, and we have an amazing team leading this, is that we do have a new um, internship program that provides opportunities specifically um, targeted towards um, populations that have been underrepresented in conservation as a as a ultimate goal to try to create pathways for people into the conservation workforce. So it's a very different framing of internships in the past, which have been about, you know, getting someone on board to help with projects, you know, professional development too, but really about getting the work done. This program is really focused on creating those pathways for for students to be embedded in, a, in an organization that will lead to a path and career path in conservation. That program's been around for a couple of years now, um, and I think has made, a huge impact on so many people, and I have you know the entire organization is behind it. And seeing how much energy and um, you know excitement that flows from when that crop of of interns comes in in the summer has been really really cool.
0: That's awesome. So is that for like undergraduate students or high school students? What what's like the age range it's that you're targeting?
1: Undergraduate and some graduate students. So the the other thing I think that program has been doing a really great job at is really learning and adapting. So it, it started, you know, they're still figuring out what scale makes the most sense and particularly what scale makes the most sense for creating that pathway. Um, so right now I think the, the, the recruiting, um, is usually in, in March. Um, there's, I think we've got 39 positions open for this summer. Um, we'll see how the numbers change over time, but, um, But right now it's a mix of undergraduate positions and um, master's level positions.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's great to hear. I I could see it feeling potentially a little hollow if you had an organization that was kind of preaching inclusivity and trying to practice it in its projects, but wasn't kind of internalizing that. I could see that being a struggle if that wasn't kind of keeping pace. Shauna, are there... Before we kind of start to wrap up, were there questions that I asked that you wanted to return to? Were there threads that we started that you wanted to make sure we kind of tie a better bow on than we have?
1: Um, I think maybe, you know, the one thing that I think about a lot of my work, which I know we talk, we've talked about before, is this, you know, co-design, co-production of knowledge, the role of conservation, the role of academia. And I think this sort of, you know, and I'm not being in academia, but I imagine that this sort of deep reflection on the role of academics and knowledge co-production is ongoing. Um, And I just, I mean, I'd be really curious to hear from your perspective, based on the conversation that we had today, what you think the role, you know, how can the academic community come alongside the, you know, conservation practice science, especially with this goal of inclusive conservation and inclusive science in mind to really, um, I don't know. Walk the talk that we're we're talking about today.
0: Mm. Good question. I think academia has its. I think we kind of face our own incentive problems within academia. We're very it's it's very publication and citation driven. You know, we think about collective action problems in conservation, and we have the tragedy commons narrative, et cetera, but. We face a lot of these same kind of coordination, collective action problems in our own organizations. I mean, we have what I would effectively think of as like an arms race of publications within academia. And so people struggle simply to keep up with the academic literature per se, let alone like thinking, okay, I'm going to kind of get off this train and get into this applied space that is maybe not legible at all to the people that I think I'm worried about impressing.
1: Yeah, no, it's I mean, when I see look at it from the outside and I've had some really, really fruitful collaborations with academics, but a lot of times it's with those who are either like in explicit positions that are about applied research, um, part of formal partnerships that are designed for applied research with funding tied to them. you know, we, host, we host postdocs a lot at WWF to like dig into certain questions and use that as a way to sort of cross science and practice. But it is really hard when you've got sort of all the incentive structures and the, the broader structures that we're working in kind of like wired against collaborations. And the number of workshops I've been in where we've dug into this and kind of come to the same conclusions are, um, you know, there have been many. But I think the, it seems like an intervention is needed at a higher scale to really enable yep. that kind of you know, structure to shift to then change some of the mental models and deeply ingrained beliefs about like what an academic does. Um, that could be a whole other episode.
0: <laughs> and I think you wanna be kind of, there's, there's systemic or top down and there's bottom up, right? From the bottom up, I think it's kind of what you mentioned is the importance of building collaborations over time with specific people, right? So you and I have a conversation it, you know, and you get a feel for the other person and, it, and you kind of build a vibe over time with people. You think, okay, like this could become a collaborative relationship over time. And that needs to happen over time. You know, we need to get past this kind of what I call the baton model of collaboration too, where it's like, oh, the social scientists, social sciences, and then gives that output to the ecologists, to ecologists, right? And, and that's, you know, not really following the spirit of what we mean by collaboration. mm mm-hmm. So from the bottom up, I, th- I feel like I heard some of that s- sentiment from you. And I think, and also from the top down, I agree. We do need to think about more. It's As you said, it's systems thinking. And we need more holistic view- views of each other mm-hmm. as well and ways to value that.
1: And we're even talking about that in our conservation work. So this um, recent review we did on how to better enable more participatory approaches to monitoring and evaluation uncovered a really, really clear need to actually recognize the critical importance of relationship development and cultivating that over time and the pre-work that needs to go into um, even conceiving a project idea. Um, Mm. And so I think, again, that requires this like structural change from a funder allowing for funding to go towards really nebulous deliverables um, as well as sort of a mental model belief shift that those actions are critical for delivering the results that that we want. Um, So I think at least in that domain of work, we see that as a longer conversation that we need to, to start having about how do we enable a kind of funding and reporting structure that can actually allow for that sort of relationship development from the bottom up. And I imagine something really similar is needed in the academic space so that you can also cultivate those relationships with practice and figure out how do you then build research programs that help meet, you know maybe the publication pipeline isn't the best metric but something in that realm that allows academia to contribute to the broader knowledge base but also do really you know relevant science to today's challenges because i think the you know the one drumbeat that we hear increasingly is just like how little time we have left when you actually really look at the trajectory of change in our global society things are things are rapidly changing and we really, really need to do something about it soon. And then we can get really lost in our in our, our world sometimes. And again, knowing when to sort of dig deep, understand the problem, find a leverage point, and then test that assumption and work on it and then dig back deep again. Hmm.
0: I will say it's nice to hear a reference to Dan- Danella Meadows' work. She actually was at Dartmouth when she did a lot of that work.
1: Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah, she's been a huge inspiration for a lot of the work on systems thinking. I think it was actually the first book when I got to the Resilience Center that we read as part of our program was was thinking in systems.
0: Okay. Um well, as you said, I think we could have a whole other hour-long conversation about, you know, how to build some of these bridges. Um but I I have to actually go to another meeting soon. And yeah. I imagine you have to too. And <laughs> yeah. I don't want to take too much advantage of your generosity here. Are there any final thoughts you want to share, uh, Shauna, before we wrap up?
1: No, just grateful for this this conversation. I think it's a really important one to be having. Um, knowing the audience of the podcast, the science practice space is really, really important. We need more people thinking about it, working in this space. Um, so thank you.
0: Thank you, Shauna, this was really great. Uh, thanks for your time. And, you know, hopefully, maybe and hopefully we can find uh, ways to collaborate in the future.
1: Yeah, that would be wonderful. Okay, best of luck on the house. Thank you. <laughs> like, I know it's like you know, nerve I, um, I know, right? It's like... Yeah, okay. The other realtor called, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to figure uh, out. What's okay, <laughs> all right, best of luck. Okay. Great, take care. Bye.
0: Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incoming Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.